Greetings in Jesus' name. It's a blessing to come together with God's people and hear what is going on in other parts of the world and and to hear God's God's word given to us right out of scripture this morning. The conscience. What did my Gatnip say already? His his air wrench and take the can twist the lugs off of the pink Cadillac with no twins of conscience. An animal can do something with no no conscience. It doesn't feel wrong when it does what it does. Now maybe your dog knows when he does something wrong, right? His tail goes between his legs, but that's usually a master's conscience, not his own. But that's what people are different. There's an image stamped of God that no other creature creation in creation has. And that conscience, like Adam and Eve, they didn't feel right when they violated their conscience. They knew they did it wrong. They couldn't come before God anymore. And it's when, when, the, when the full full forgiveness of sin through the Lord Jesus Christ that you have an open and a clear conscience again. It's a very brief presentation of salvation, but that is what salvation is about. When your sins are forgiven, you have a clear conscience. (laughs) And like Pilgrim's Progress, that weight falls off your back and you can leap for joy. So, thank you for that message. You can turn to Ephesians chapter 6 again this morning for a message. We have heard a lot about PPE in this past year. PPE is personal protective equipment. It's been around for a long time, but it became a household name in this last year during the pandemic when in New York City, the pandemic really began to mushroom and they began to look for supplies like masks and gloves and gowns, especially masks. PPE, protective, personal protective equipment. And then at the pandemic expanded, uh, different governors and entities and hospitals began a bidding war on the remaining diminishing supplies of the PPE in the world. <clears throat> All of a sudden, PPE, this PPE became very important. Now, a study of the history of PPE is the first, the best they know is it was first used by soldiers back in ancient times when soldiers wore protective headgear, face gear, body armor to, to uh, keep, in order to fight their enemy without being killed themselves, they wore protective, personal protective equipment. And in non-military settings, I, I don't know if this is true, they had the first indications of it is in the Middle Ages when they had blacksmiths who worked with molten metals and they wore gloves and aprons and various things like that to shield themselves from the molten metal. And PPE has continued to expand as the industry developed. In 1970, the federal government formed a nationwide entity called OSHA. <laughs> None of you have ever heard of that. Now, one of the many responsibilities of OSHA was to define the appropriate personal protective equipment for every 
possible job description that you could find. That was one of their responsibilities is to, is to identify the hazards and to assign PPE. Now, OSHA is viewed as both a blessing and a curse. It actually succeeded in substantially reducing work occupational deaths and injuries. Uh, in 1970, there was about 14,000 deaths a year, and in the more recent year, it was 5,500, like today. In spite of the doubling of the workforce, it's only one-third of the deaths, uh, approximately. Although, some of the credit for the lowering deaths can be the type of industry that is done today. There's less manufacturing, less heavy industry, more service, more office jobs, which are less dangerous. So some of that is, is comes in as well. Those office jobs are less dangerous by nature. Now, OSHA is also viewed, maybe not as a curse, but as a regulatory bondage and nightmare <laughs> because of the myriad of regulations and the accompanying enforcements, which crimp production and raise cost. The Empire State Building was constructed in 15 months in 1932, 1931-32 it was built. Today it takes about 10 years to construct a tall building in the city. The Pennsylvania Turnpike, its first 160-mile section, was constructed in about 20 months. Today, it takes two years to redo an intersection. <laughs> that's, that's actually a, a six-mile, about six-mile section in West Virginia where they're expanding. They're adding an extra lane onto the 81, and they've been at it for about two years, and they're not done yet. Six-mile section, one more lane. So, the point is OSHA's presence has its upsides and it has its downsides. It, things take longer, much longer. Oh, one thing I forgot to mention about the Pennsylvania Turnpike. They, they didn't know exactly what would happen when they built it. Nobody had a road like this. So it's a toll road and they had toll booths at each exit. And the first week, fine. Sunday afternoon, people went to try out this new road after church. So they went, and this created massive traffic jams on the exits to get off. So you want to get off at uh, one exit. The exit you want to get off, and it's a five-mile backup. Well, let's go to the next exit. Well, it was six miles there. Uh, just couldn't get off. So, well, this is the problem. Well, by the next Sunday, they had poured a couple more slabs of concrete, put up a couple more toll booths, and they were set to go. That was before OSHA. <laughs> now, it seems unusual to compare God with OSHA, but there are some comparisons. He understands better than we do that we live in a dangerous world. The death is possible in a myriad of ways in the natural world. You can get injured, you can get killed from a virus, from a fall, get crushed, you can get struck. So it is in the spiritual. We can die by being deceived. Or we can be like Eve was, or we can be distracted like uh, the, the, the parable of the sower, where the, the seed fell among thorns and was eventually distracted and and didn't bring fruit. We can become proud like King Saul became proud, or we can disobedient like King Solomon. But those are not the only thing that can happen to us, like injury in the job, because we're actually in a war zone where you actually have an enemy, an active enemy, an, an enemy that actually studies us and looks for areas he can get us, destroy us, kill us. It's a war zone. What the war does is you have two sides, 
And the one side and both, both sides try to destroy the other. And you try to do it any way possible. And so the enemy studies us to see where he can injure us into ineffectiveness or destroy us. Now God is not like Osha in that he is a mixed blessing, mixed regulatory blessing or, and a curse or burden. He is actually a loving father. And he paid a lot for us. He paid. He has a lot invested into us for us to become one of his. So God is the commander-in-chief. Jesus is the general. And the Holy Spirit is with us in the trenches in the, to assist us in our units and equip us. God... And Jesus and the Holy Spirit, they are, they are all wise, they're all powerful, they're all knowing, they're all loving. And in this context, we're going to read Ephesians chapter 6 now, starting at verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, take the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. We'll stop there. We enlisted in God's army when we surrendered to him. We then showed up for duty and entered his boot camp. And when you enter your boot, a boot camp, your free time, your individual identity, your secular freedom is replaced with the structure and the order and the training from the commander-in-chief. The last five messages or so have been focused on our PPE, our personal protective equipment, the last five messages. It's the armor that you put on. It's your personal protective equipment. God wants us to survive this war. There is an end to this war, and he wants us to survive to the end. He wants us to participate in the celebration of the end of the war. In that final victory. And it will be a celebration. So he provides us with this armor that we are to put on, and he instructs us to put it on and how to use it. Now today, we will get our weapon. <laughs> today we will get our weapon. And that's the verse this morning it would take. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So, if you are enlisted in the Lord's army, you are prescribed the uniform and the armor, and then you are assigned with the regulation weapon. The Spirit of God has a weapon. It's a powerful weapon. It's a sharp weapon. It's an effective weapon. And that weapon is the Word of God. Now imagine fighting a war without a weapon. That actually was tried. I don't know if it's tried, but it happened. In World War I, 
and I remember hearing it in past. I did a little bit of research and couldn't find the exact one. But in World War I, Germany attacked Russia. And in the response to try to get people out on the front quickly, they sent a lot of people out without weapons. A lot of the Russians, young boys, went out on the war. Young men went out on the war front without weapons. Some did, some didn't, most did not. And the casualty rate was horrible. They say that 80 to up to 95% of those units decimated. So of the hundreds of thousands of young men that went to the front lines in that war without a weapon, only a small percentage survived. This is not a desirable outcome. It is devastating. But we cannot expect any better outcome. If we go to war against our enemy without a weapon. Going to war without the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, is spiritual suicide. So the word of God is a powerful weapon. If you stick with the word and you believe it and you practice it, you will remain standing. The issue has always been the word of God. Eve in the garden, remember Eve, Adam and Eve, Eve in the garden, she did have the word. The word was, don't eat from that one tree. If you do, you will die. When the devil came, she started with the word. But she did not continue in it. The devil asked her, did God actually say you shall not eat of any of the trees of the garden? And then she said to the serpent, well, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, do not eat of the tree of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. So she understood God's word very well. Don't eat the fruit of that one tree. And she also understood we may eat the fruit of all the other trees. She understood God's word very, very clearly. But that one in the middle, we may not eat it. We may not even touch it lest we die. Now some say, and I, I'm not definitive in this. Some say it was wrong for her to say when she added the word and not to touch it. I don't know. The Apostle Paul did the same thing. When he, took, when he was talking there in Ephesians, he, he took the, tenth, uh, the, the fifth or sixth command, which is to honor thy father and thy mother. <laughs> he took that commandment, honor, and then he repeated that commandment in Ephesians chapter 6. Then he added, a logical outcome of honor, which is children obey your parents in the Lord. Now that is not in the Old Testament, but he, he, he made a logical and a practical deduction from the scripture. And it's okay to do that. In fact, it's needful to do that. Just stay connected to the word. So did Eve actually add to the word? Was that the beginning of her downfall? What do you think? You think it would have been good for her as she and Adam went through and ate the fruit of the trees of the garden for them to go over to that tree and to touch the fruit. Pick the fruit. Admire the fruit. Set it up in their homes. You think it would have been good for them to do that? For her to do that. Them to do that. Would you say that activity would have been recommended? Not recommended, right? So did God forbid or did he not forbid to touch it? Well, if he didn't forbid to touch it, I can do everything but eat it, right? Well, if that's the case, uh, maybe one more thing. Maybe she did put two things on the same level that are not completely the same. That is possible. 
But I believe she abandoned the word of God wholesale when she was deceived by the devil and not because of a practical deduction. If she would have stuck with God's word, if she would have continued to use her weapon against the devil, she would not have been a casualty. A few more things about touching. If only the act is forbidden and touching is not an issue, then we ought to quit our standard of hands-off courtship. It's true, it's not sin to touch one another before marriage. No. And it's true, you can be impure even without touching. And so God's real purpose is purity. Purity in mind, purity in body. Thou shalt not commit adultery, nor look with lust. In 1 Thessalonians, by being able to possess your vessel in holiness. However, to do that, you need to have proper perimeters that need to be erected and that need to be maintained to accomplish that. And that's the purpose of the practice of our courtship practice. Second, Second Corinthians, I'll just read a verse here, 6, 7. Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. So come out, be separate, and don't touch. Eve simply stopped believing God's word, and she accepted the word of the devil. And the result was that she did what the devil wanted her to do, rather than doing what God had commanded. Another verse in 1 Timothy Chapter 3, verse 10, uh, verse 1, actually. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. When you forsake the word of God, you will listen to seducing spirits, or vice versa. If you listen to seducing spirits, you will forsake the word of God. And that's what happened to Eve. The two are exclusively, uh, mutually exclusive. You cannot listen to both. Okay, let's fast forward some 4,000 years. And we come to Jesus, the Son of God. He's in, he was in heaven, he's unreachable by Satan, but he comes down to earth and makes himself reachable, vulnerable, to this spiritual warfare, the devil. <clears throat> the devil, this is his temporary domain, and, and Jesus is exposed now to the, temp, to the tempter. So you can turn to Matthew chapter 4. Again, we're looking at the Word of God, and we're looking at the Word of God as a weapon. Matthew chapter 4. Then was Jesus led up of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterward hungered. And when the tempter came to, tempter came to him, he said, If thou be the Son of God, command that these stones be made bread. Interesting, these temptations are about food, about our appetites our bodily cravings, we have them. Our bodily cravings, and you, we all know this, they are persistent and they are demanding. And Jesus had them also. And those cravings propel us to some kind of pathway to satisfy or fulfill those demands that they put on us, to quench that desire. And it was a real temptation for the Lord Jesus. Now, I just want to back up just a little bit out of this temptation. Jesus entered into this temptation in the spirit. 
That means, and relating to the first message that we heard this morning, that means his heart and his conscience was clear. He had an open communication with God. There was nothing in the way in, in his relationships. His surrender and his commitment to the Father was complete. So he entered into this temptation from a position of strength, not a weakness. If we have issues in our lives, and if our conscience is not clear, and if, we, if our commitment is wavering or various things like that, and then we have these temptations. We are entering in these temptations from a position of weakness. You're very, very vulnerable. We, 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 we are very vulnerable in that situation. It is important for us to keep the slate clean before us and God, to keep the conscience clean, to keep relationships clear. That's how Jesus entered into this temptation. But still, it's a temptation. <clears throat> and Jesus answered and said, It is written, it is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So it is written, and I'd like to go back to where it was actually written. Jesus quoted Deuteronomy, so if you could, turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 8. We'll study this a little bit more and how he used his weapon. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 and 3. And thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee. This is Moses talking to the children of Israel. He's instructing them and he's tell, thou shalt remember all the way which the Lord thy God led thee these 40 years in the wilderness to humble thee and to prove thee, to know what was in thine heart, whether thou wouldest keep his commandments or no. And he, God, humbled thee and suffered thee to hunger and fed thee with manna, which thou knewest not. Neither did thy fathers know, that he might make thee know that man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of the Lord doth man live. See, Jesus understood in his temptation exactly what was going on. The Israelites had been led into the wilderness. Jesus was led into the wilderness. They became hungry. He became hungry. They saw no prospect of food coming. Jesus saw no prospect of food coming, 40 days without food. And the logical, unbelieving answer to that is we're all going to die. The faithless uh, understanding of that. And so the Israelites murmured and they complained, and this is what they said um, earlier in, well, somewhere further down. Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full, for ye have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So they were put into this temptation and this was their response. They were powerless to do something about it. Now, Jesus had power to do something about it. So his temptation was not to murmur or complain, but was to fix the problem himself. But the result would be the same, a mistrust or a pulling away of the care and plan of God. <clears throat> See, God had told the Israelites that he would bring them into the promised land. That it was promised to Abraham, and I'm going to take you to this land. And they could have, they had that word of God. I'm going to take you. And they had that word. And now they have no food. And they began to say, well, no, God's not going to keep his word. They had the word of God. Hebrews says they eventually did not enter in because of an evil heart of unbelief. 
But complaining was not necessary. In fact, let's say it for us. Let's say it for us. Complaining is not necessary. <laughs> Murmuring and doubt is not necessary. We do have God's word also. Jesus, in this case, said, I will not do what they did. I will go by the word of God. I am very hungry. I have strong cravings right now. All these things are very real, and they're right staring me in the face. And the devil is telling me I can satisfy these cravings by this method. But I know that is not God's will. I can satisfy my cravings this way, but it's not God's will. So I am going to deny my cravings and I'm going to go with God's word. You see how the temptation is going here. He used, and then he, 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 he got the word of God and he used it against Satan. He swiped Satan off. Satan said, well, make these in the bread. And he said, no, this is exactly what God said. And he didn't go by it. He used his weapon effectively against Satan. Now, we're all going to be tested in this way. All of us are going to get tested in, in some way or another, not by fasting 40 days in the wilderness, but by these temptations that come. We're going to have a difficult situation, an, an impossible situation, and, and then an alternative is presented to us. Okay, this is an impossible situation, but here's an alternative. But it's not in alignment with God's word. Now, like the Israelites, and uh, this is it's interesting in temptation, the Israelites, the Israelites were being tested, not by the devil, but by God. <laughs> he said, I'm doing this to see what's in your heart. So God will try each one of us. He will us. He will put us in situations where we actually need to make a choice, whether we will keep his commandments or whether we will not. And so then the question comes up, oh, okay, well, does God tempt us? Or does the devil tempt us? Well, what's going on here? Well, there's a difference in the purpose. God actually does test us, but he does it for the purpose to expose things in us that we don't know are there or that we know are there and don't deal with. And he puts us in situation because his goal for us is holiness. His goal for us is to become more like him. So he, he it's, it's, well, in a, in a sense, it's a, it's a discipline. Uh, if you look at discipline, it's not always a whipping. A discipline is, is, is simply a, a strict measure of some kind that you go through and you learn discipline in it. And so God does that. But it's for our growth and our holiness. He does it because he loves us. Now the devil puts us or puts things in our path as well. He tempts people who love God, who want to serve God, the devil does. But his purpose is not our holiness. His purpose is not, well, his purpose is our hellishness, is what it is. He wants us destroyed. So the devil will come, the Lord sees an area, a weak spot, and he wants to fix it. The devil sees a weak spot, and he wants to use it to destroy us. So he sees a craving, he sees a weakness, he sees something in us that he can exploit. And then he'll give you an alternative, like he did Jesus. And I want you to know you can expect it. It happens, it will happen. It's what's going on. So the Lord Jesus did not take the devil, he used the sword of the spirit after him after the devil, and, and he 
got terror that. Then the devil taketh him up into the holy city and setteth him on a pinnacle of the temple and saith unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down. For it is written, the devil quoting the scripture, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hand they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Yes, the devil does know, and he knows how to use or misuse the word of God. And in this case, he used Psalms 91, that beautiful, beautiful psalm. Some of you know it by heart. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High, as some of you could quote it with me, shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I shall say of the Lord, he is my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver me from the snare of the fowler and from the noise and pestilence. And we could read the whole thing, but we're going to read the verses that he quoted. For he shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. They shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. So this is a psalm of providential care and promise. And here comes the devil. Very spiritually sounding devil. Ever so trusting. So you're going to trust God. You're in the wilderness. You're going to trust that he's going to give you food. Okay, trust God. And he quotes, this is what the word says. And he quotes the psalm, but he only quotes part of it. He misquotes it. He says, he shall give his angel charge over thee, but he skips to keep thee in all thy ways. In other words, there is a pathway to walk. And if you are in the way, then God will protect you and he will keep you and he will put a hedge abound over you and he will guard you and he will, um, nothing more can come to you than what uh, is coming to man and he will be a way of escape. God will do all that in the way. But the devil keeps that part out, misquotes the word. And that is done today. You take a small portion of the word, you take it out of context, or you isolate it from other scriptures, and you can completely change the entire meaning of the passage. The devil completely changed the meaning of that passage by just taking that part out. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. That's true, is it not? But you just take a surface reading of that word and isolate it from other scripture. You say, all I need to do is believe that Jesus died for my sins and I have a ticket to heaven. Isolate it, misquote it, and removed from its meaning. It is actually true. If you believe, that means fully, completely put your confidence and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do we know who the Lord Jesus Christ is? The second part of the Trinity, the, uh, the Redeemer, the one who died for our sins, that he is now king and he's coming back in judgment. And you know who the Lord Jesus Christ is. You know that he's our, he has died to save us and you know that he's the king and you know that he has a kingdom and that you completely entrust yourself into him and you believe in him. You will be saved. That is true. But take that out of context, and it's not. There is healing in the atonement. That's a devastating blow to those who believe this, and then it doesn't happen to them. And they are sick, and their sickness isn't healed, and that's many, many ex examples of that. The Spirit will guide you into all truth. The Lord... Jesus promised that to the apostles. He said, uh, I'll, 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 after I leave, the Spirit will come, and he will bring in remembrance all the things that I have said to you. And so you have that promise so that the apostles could write the scriptures that we have today. But this here is to guide you into all truth. isn't meant for you to have some kind of exclusive understanding of the heart of God that no one else has. That's not what it means.
No man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. That's a verse of tremendous security, but it is not a verse of unconditional, eternal security. It's the spirit that quickeneth, the flesh profiteth nothing. Does not mean that our actions or our works are of no significance. God loves everybody. I had that discussion on the phone yesterday. How can you say, I was asked, that such and such a person is going to hell? I said, well, I didn't say it. God says it, and I agree with God. I'm not saying it. Do you want me to disagree with God? If God says this is what happens, if a person does this and doesn't repent, that that's what it is, should I say, God, you're wrong? No, we can agree with God. So God loves everybody? Well, you got to qualify that. <laughs> he sure does love us. But there's more to it. So there is a word for us in response to the devil's temptations. And him misquoting the word, him coming in spiritual garb, it is sharpen your sword. And there is a verse, study, to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needed not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's the word for us. <clears throat> That's our weapon against the devil. Jesus used that weapon. That weapon of rightly dividing the word of God. Jesus used that weapon. We need to know that weapon. We need to practice it. We need to memorize it. Talk about the word of God. We need to discuss it. We need to be able to take it apart and put it back together again. We need to do it with our fellow believers and individually. Now, Jesus was alone here. He needed to do it alone. And he answered the devil, It is written again, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And he brought that perspective. So when we're faced with the distortion of the word, it is most fitting to respond with the balancing perspective of the word. I, had, I read an article. It's not in my notes. I read an article just this past week where someone was trying to make an argument for universalism, which means everybody goes to heaven. And he used the verses. He said he likes to bring a couple of verses in Romans to uh, Christians like me that, and he likes to see them, he likes to quote these verses and say, and he likes to see them squirm. <laughs> these verses and see them squirm because it blows their belief out of the water. It was the verse where Jesus, Jesus died for everyone. Uh, let me see, Romans 5, I don't have it in my, in my head right now. So, not body of uh, it's it's where it's contrasting where Jesus died for us and that and that uh, we all we all sinned all fell in Adam, and then we all are made alive in Christ. And I don't know for sure in which one it is in chapter. Much more than being justified. Yeah, maybe 15. For through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And uh, maybe he was using a different translation, but it was the word all. So if, if all are dead in Adam, then all are alive in Christ. That was his argument. So he liked to get this verse and make you squirm. Clearly, everybody is saved. And I immediately thought, what well, Jesus himself said, that uh, the, the, there's a narrow way and a broad way. And you can very quickly align Scripture with Scripture and say, well, something's wrong with that. So anyhow, the devil, uh, there's, a lot, there's a lot out there. There's a lot of uh, various ways like that out there. And maybe even in here.
Again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them and saith unto him, All these things will I give thee if thou wilt fall down and worship me. And this is the, the shortcut to Jesus' kingship, the bypassing the cross. It was this temptation for Jesus, and Jesus faced his temptation later on again. And But Jesus did the same thing again. And Jesus said to him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leaveth him. And behold, angels came and ministered unto him. So Jesus used the sword of the Spirit. He used the word of God. He quoted the scripture. And I'd like to ask you, well, how could he do that? Well, he learned them, right? As a child, as a youth, as a young man, a young adult. The scriptures... And spiritual things were his main interest. And we can see that when he was left behind in Jerusalem. And his parents went home after the Passover. He stayed back. Where did he stay? He stayed at a temple. He was discussing the things of God. Now, I don't believe that was an isolated incident in his life. I think that was a snapshot of his life. So what do you think he did when he was home in the synagogue? Uh, at home in family worship? I believe that snapshot in Jerusalem was an indication of the tenor of his life. Now was Jesus tempted growing up as a child? He didn't have a sin nature like we do. So I don't know if he was tempted or not during that time. But he most definitely was going to face horrendous temptation after he took on the mantle of the ministry. So he prepared for that. So Jesus took that weapon. It was actually his own weapon, the Spirit of God. It was his own weapon. He took it. And he prepared for battle. And I'm going to use the metaphor of a gun now to use against the devil. When a, when a, soldier, when a soldier enlists, he is prescribed a weapon. And he is taught, he begins to learn how to use the, the gun. He's, he's given a gun, let's say, in, in, in modern warfare. He's given a gun and he's taught how to use it. He's first taught with target practice and then taught at various distances and then various angles and then finally with various terrain and various weather and various lighting. And he, is, he practices and practices until this weapon becomes like a part of himself. It becomes like an extension of himself. Then he also become familiar with that weapon. He's taught how to take it apart. He's taught, he's showed how to understand how each piece works and why it's needed. He, he's able to completely disassemble and reassemble this, this, uh, this weapon. He's able to detect when it's malfunctioning. He's trained to troubleshoot it and fix the problem. If he's well-trained, he can take this gun apart in the dark and fix it. He's so familiar with it. And when this, this soldier goes out to the battlefront, he is well-armed against the enemy. And that is exactly how Jesus met the devil. Well-armed. I, I remember a young man that work where I did years ago, who was newly converted from a very bad background. Um, I don't actually know what all he was into, but he was a young man, probably around 20 or low 20s. And he got converted. And he 
it was before the time of audio and all those things that we have nowadays. He put scripture verses up in different places on his machine, and he was quoting and memorizing scripture. He filled his mind with the word of God. <clears throat> he was replacing his wrong thought patterns and his dirty minds with the word of God as he memorized the word and quoted the word and read the word. He was washing his mind of that filth and those habits and those corruption. And that is a tremendous weapon against the devil, against the strongholds of the devil in his life. For him to immerse himself in the word of God was an issue of death or life. It was to immerse yourself in the spirit and in the word of God or die. It was life or death. He saw for what it was. I must be able to use my weapon. And of course, some of you heard the story. When I was a new Christian, I was assaulted broadside with a, an errant belief or errant perspective of Christianity. And I was not well prepared, had not been well taught. I did use my weapon, but rather clumsily. In some ways, it's a miracle that I survived that one. There were other soldiers around me that used their weapons better than I did that were able to ward off that doctrine, and it was the mercy of God. But I was in a situation where I was overpowered. The enemy was closing in, and there were some casualties on our side. But we survived the battle, and we came out of the other side alive. It was then and there that I proposed to learn to know God's word, to learn to know my weapon. I did not want to find myself in such a place again. To learn to understand and to practice the word of God. And it was for survival, for myself, for those around me, family and church and friends and the people of God in general. I wanted to be able to use my weapon, my personal weapon, my personal understanding, my personal experience with God against the devil, along with many other people doing the same thing and have an assault, a protection against the enemy, and also go into his kingdom against our common enemy, the devil. Um, you can turn to Second Timothy chapter 3. We've got some more verses here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12, starting at verse 12 to the end. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. Paul, of course, exhorting Timothy. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished, unto all good works. The scriptures are breathed out by God. The scriptures are a written extension of the spirit of God. Holy men wrote as they were carried along by the Holy Ghost, by the Holy Spirit. They wrote these. And uh, Paul's told Timothy, they will inform you how to be saved. We are born again by the Spirit, is what John says there. Born again by the Spirit of God, John says there in, in John 3. 
And then I'm going to read a few verses in in First Peter. Actually, maybe, well, you don't have to turn there. So we're born again by the Spirit of God. We're also born again by the Word of God, being born again. Peter says in First Peter 1, 23, being born again, not a corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is at the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof fadeth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Wherefore, lay aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies and all evil speakings, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word, that ye may grow thereby. So the word of God will save you. Once saved, the word of God will instruct you, it will correct you, and it will perfect you, it will mature you. The word of God will furnish you. Think of an empty house, an empty shell of a house. The word of God, uh, when, you're, when a person is saved, they have this empty house. The word of God furnishes that house. He equips it and makes it livable and makes it beautiful and practical and homey and all that. The word of God does that. It furnishes us. It equips us. It equips us to do battle against Satan. It equips us to, uh, to, in the war to, to move forward. And equips us for all good works. Maybe you should care. Peter, Peter says. I'm going to paraphrase Peter here. <laughs> Peter says. When he says. Put. Lay aside. Put away. Your phones. And your media. And your distractions. Isn't that what he's saying? Your malice, to guile, hypocrisies, envies, and evil speaking. Could all that stuff, all that junk away. Instead, desire the pure, unadulterated milk, the word of God. Don't focus on the politics or the sports or the uh, cooking skills or the decorations or the things that are no use in the war against Satan, either defensive or offensive. Rather, get skilled in the use of your assigned weapon, the word of God, that powerful and living and dynamic word of God. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13, for the, for the word of God is quick. That means it's living and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and into the discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, For we walk in the flesh. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but are mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. All that is a function of the Word of God. And there's many, many ways we go applications with this. Um, Oh, I want to know that how Eve did not stay with her weapon. Jesus did stay with his weapon, but Jesus knew the weapon well. He had a clear heart. We need to follow the example of the Lord Jesus. In our world, there's a huge competition for time, for our time. And there's modern media distracts us in a myriad of ways. One of the soils, one of the soils of the parable of the sower was when the word was sowed among the weeds and that word grew. 
it sprouted and it grew, but then the distractions of the world choked it out. It choked the word out, and it didn't bring fruit. It actually didn't come. It's actually a casualty. That 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 plant is a casualty when the distractions came in and choked out the word. It never brought fruit. And we need to recognize this competition for our time. Someone has said, and I don't actually have uh, know who it is, who it was. He said, the purpose of social media and movies and entertainment, etc., is to show us or show everybody on the last day that our prayerlessness is not because of was was not because of a lack of time. Our he's saying the purpose of all these things that are coming are to show that the purpose of our prayerlessness was not from a lack of time because we had a lot of time. It was distracted. Nor is it a lack of being familiar with our weapon, the Bible, because of a lack of time. Now, this is not true. It's true in varying ways to us. For some of us, it's more true. For others of us, it's less true. But it's true for all of us. So learn the scriptures. You can't use it if you don't know how to operate your weapon. Reassign some of your other activities and get into God's word. C.H. Spurgeon says that we shall need a sword. He said, our warfare is not child's play. We mean business. We have to deal with fierce foes who are not only to be met with keen weapons, who are only to be met with keen weapons. Boxing will not suffice in this contest. We must come to sword cuts. You may be of a very quiet spirit, but your adversaries are not so. If you attempt to play at Christian warfare, they will not. To meet the powers of darkness is no sham battle. They mean mischief. Nothing but your eternal damnation will satisfy the fiendish hearts of Satan and his crew. To be a Christian is to be a warrior. The good soldier of Jesus Christ must not expect to find ease in this world. It is a battlefield. Neither must he reckon upon the friendships of the world, for that would be enmity against God. His occupation is war. As he puts on piece by piece the array provided for him, he may wisely say to himself, This warns me of danger. This prepares me for warfare. This prophesies opposition. And that's some of what Spurgeon had to say. Then I had a few words, a few poems here that I thought would close with as we look at the the Bible and our encouragement to get into it. The Bible stands like a rock undaunted mid the raging storms of time. It's Pages burn with the truth eternal, and they glow with a light sublime. The Bible stands like a mountain towering far above the works of men. Its truth by none ever was refuted, and destroy it they never can. The Bible stands, and it will forever, when the world has passed away. By inspiration it has been given, and all its precepts I will obey. The Bible stands every test we give it, for its author is divine. By grace alone, I expect to live it and to prove it and to make it mine. And the refrain, the Bible stands though the hills may tumble. It will firmly stand when the earth shall crumble. I will plant my feet on its firm foundation where the Bible stands. And then another one, the anvil of God's word. Last eve, I paused beside the blacksmith's door and heard the anvil ring the vesper chime. Then looking in, I saw upon the floor old hammers worn with beating years of time. How many anvils have you had, said I, 
to wear and batter all those hammers so. Just one, said he, and then with a twinkling eye, the anvil wears, wears out the hammers, the anvil wears the hammers out, you know. And so, I thought, the anvil of God's word, for ages skeptics' blows have beat upon, yet, though the noise of falling blows was heard, the anvil is unharmed, the hammers are gone. And so, take the word of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. May God bless you.